0: You have accessed entry 107.ex2512, certificate number 51290. The Beatles Lord of the Rings. Bilbo 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 Baggins is
1: only three feet tall. Bilbo Bilbo Baggins, the bravest little hobbit of them all. You and I are fortunate enough. Uh, to know a lot of interesting people, even if we ourselves are not that interesting.
0: That's right. That's how you know you've lived a good life. If you're always hanging out with people less interesting than you. Yeah. I mean, somebody's gotta do it.
1: Look around the room. The the the, the mark is you. Half the time yeah. in you know, in any
0: relationship, half of those people are talking to someone less interesting than themselves.
1: Right. Hopefully half of the time they're talking to someone more interesting than themselves. I just mean
0: in any given conversation. Half of the half of the participants are, by definition, oh. the less talking to the talking to someone less interesting, and thereby wasting their time or giving generously of their own interestingness.
1: Right, right, and I think you and I are the recipients of a lot of uh, of like downward sloping interestingness. <laughs> who are you? Uh, who are you thinking of here? <laughs> well, I, I'm uh, I'm saying this by uh, way of explanation because you know I'm um, l- lately this winter I joined a Moby Dick. Uh, book club, Moby Dick being a a novel that is famously, well, the great American novel, but also famously difficult to read. I love Moby Dick. Yeah. And uh, I read it. It was assigned to me in sixth grade by a teacher. What? Yeah, I know. Uh, And she she didn't do it um, overtly. Was Was it a prank? She didn't do it to punish me exactly, but she was, I think, tired of... Um, pardon me, I'm screwing around with my microphone here.
0: A little peek behind the curtain there. No matter what uh, you do, it keeps moving back to where it wants to be. Yeah, it does.
1: Mic mic stands are the worst. Uh, I think that she was tired of hearing that I was a gifted child and tired of trying to tailor her lesson plans to the entire class and then a separate one to me to keep me from interrupting. And uh, and she said, "You know what? Why don't you read some of the great novels?" And she gave me *Tale of Two Cities* and *Moby Dick*.
0: Now, *Tale of Two Cities* actually, at one point, would work for a young child. It, I mean, it, the language is kind of archaic today. Yeah,
1: it clips along, but you have to you have to have some knowledge of the causes and effects of the French Revolution. But
0: at least every other chapter is not local color the way Moby Dick is.
1: Right. Moby Dick was incredibly difficult for me to read because there are chapters that uh, are—there are chapters that, you know, that are written in a kind of vernacular, but there are other chapters that are impenetrable.
0: Just a whole chapter about how to make a net or something.
1: Yeah, and chapters that are just a series of references to the Bible, the Greeks, and contemporary authors of the day. Like, if if you don't know the works of Nathaniel Hawthorne, I— I don't think you could understand.
0: Plus, when is the title character ever going to appear? Am I right?
1: Moby Dick does not appear. (laughs) You put in
0: hundreds of pages and you're like, yeah, uh, title character, my butt, where's Moby Dick at? If if I start watching um, the Jimmy Kimmel show, I better see Jimmy Kimmel in about five minutes or I'm changing the channel.
1: Right. I mean, the first whale doesn't appear until the chapter 70. (laughs) You thought this novel would have whales. (laughs) Ahab isn't even in it for the the first 40 chapters. Uh, But... Uh but that book group is actually full of fascinating people. And uh I'm is one of them a Beatle? Are you in a book no, group
0: with Ringo Starr? No, unfortunately. Sorry, sorry, Sir Ringo Starr.
1: Unfortunately, I am not uh I am not in a book group with Ringo Starr, but Julia Sweeney from Saturday Night Live is in it. Well. Wow. And a lot of other fascinating people besides. Um, and one of those people is our good friend Maria Semple. Oh, right. And um she also had uh, as a side Zoom group because I guess Zoom now is how we how we get along and Maria is a very extroverted person so she probably has more Zoom groups than you and I combined than you I everyone I know combined but one of her uh Zoom groups is a group of people who are discussing the Beatles yes are you familiar with this group?
0: Yes. They were telling me when they had Mark Lewis on to talk about his his three-volume Beatle biography, which he made and never survived to complete.
1: Yeah. Uh, and the Beatle group is a fascinating uh, collection of people, including uh, David Kissinger right. and various other like uh, just people that you wouldn't expect. And I think it began as a politics discussion. Yeah,
0: I was on their Abraham Lincoln group with David Kissinger before it turned into The Beatles.
1: Right. Uh, I should have
0: stuck around.
1: Yeah, and I think it just naturally, as soon as The Beatles come up, then whatever you're talking about becomes a conversation about The Beatles. If you're with a certain group of people, my other podcast, Roderick on the Line, for many years was like 80% about The Beatles and Hitler because Hitler's another one that if you, um, if somebody mentions Hitler... Boy, you're going to be talking about Hitler.
0: Plus, it's just maddening that they never met. The
1: Beatles and Hitler? Yeah, the,
0: the Beatles would have been children, Can you imagine?
1: Well, the be- 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 Beatles met Elvis, and Elvis famously met Hitler.
0: The Beatles met Dylan. So I guess Elvis is uh, one step, one. Uh, D- Bob Dylan is um, one step removed from Hitler then. Right. And they had the same mustache for a while.
1: Right. And they all know uh, Kevin Bacon. Do the Beatles know so, Kevin Bacon, so, do you think? So I'm only two kisses away.
0: I'm not 100% sure Kevin Bacon has ever met a Beatle, but it seems
1: likely. Have you ever done a Kevin Bacon? Wait a minute, it's not Kevin Bacon. Is it Kevin Bacon? It is. Have you ever done uh, uh, Six Degrees of Separation from Kevin Bacon?
0: On myself? Yeah. Well, I can't because I'm I'm not in movies.
1: Well, but you've... Oh, but haven't you appeared with movie stars?
0: Do I just have to be in the room with them?
1: Oh, Weren't there movie stars on Jeopardy? <laughs> Don't movie stars come on there sometimes?
0: I guess I was on The Simpsons.
1: Right. So I'm sure you You're can get- You're one kiss away from him.
0: Yeah. And, uh, well, not Hitler. Well, no. But George and Paul and Ringo were all on The Simpsons. Right. Kevin Bacon probably was. I don't know. Well, anyway- Definitely movie... regular Bacon has been
1: on. Mm, many mm, times. Bacon. And Maria Semple is only one kiss away from George
0: uh, Meyer. Well, sure, that's how, I, Meyer. that's how I got on The Simpsons. It's all who you know. Is that right? Oh, I think so. Yeah, I knew some of those writers. I'm not. I'm not Simpsons famous.
1: Well, uh, Maria contacted me uh, as as uh, she is wont to do and said, "Hey, our Beatles group this week is um, is going to have Michael Lindsay Hogg. Wow, appear uh, via Zoom, and you know, there's only ten people in this group. How do you get Michael Lindsay Hogg? Well, because you have to." Of your ten people, explain who few, he is. A by few the of way. them have to be fascinating. So Michael Lindsay Hogg is—he's um, one of those characters who is a—and there aren't that many of these characters, so I'd, I'm not even sure that this is a type. But um, and you can guess
0: by his hyphenated Hogg name that he's British, and you would be correct.
1: Well, except that he's British, but grew up entirely in America That's speaks funny. with an American accent is um was born in America, so although he was the fifth baronet of the lindsey hogs <laughs> um he and is a and is a, a as a sir um he is very american in his uh in his way he went to choat you know he um he reads as American and I think uh, I think maybe somewhat rumored to have had a relationship with Gloria Vanderbilt. So maybe is Anderson Cooper's Anderson dad. Anderson Cooper's dad. No way of knowing. But, uh, he st- he was a filmmaker and he got his start kind of, uh, doing early music videos for the stones and the who and so forth. And then he was chosen and he did a lot of those cool Beatles videos as a result of those early ones, he did the videos for Paperback Rider and Hey Jude. Those those proto music videos at a time when videos hardly existed, right? Uh, or or were invented. Yeah. And then he was the one that directed the Rolling Stones' Rock and Roll Circus that famously didn't come out for.
0: I did not know that. I didn't know about
1: decades. his non Beatles uh, credits. Have you seen the Rock and Roll Circus? I haven't. Have you never seen it? No. It's really kind of astonishing, and you if, know, it didn't come out until the. If
0: I can sit through Magical Mystery Tour, I can watch this.
1: Exactly. Uh, it 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 didn't come out until 1996 because the Rolling Stones do not look very good in it. Um, it famously like they look mean or they look gaunt. No, they the the Who absolutely rules. Ah, I see. They're, they just blow them off the stage. Yeah, blew them off the stage. And by the time the Stones went on, it was four o'clock in the morning, and they were all junkies by that point. And their performances were just lackluster. There had been so many other cool things that happened that day. And the Stones just realized, like, why would we put this out? (laughs) This this just makes us look like a real drag. So it didn't. And then, you know, when you watch it now, it's a a nice time capsule. But Lindsay Hogg was then chosen to record the Beatles' Let It Be slash Get Back sessions. And he made the movie Let It Be. Which um, shows
0: the fragmenting of the four.
1: Yeah, that's right. And and what prompted this Zoom call with Michael Lindsay Hogg was the release of Peter Jackson's, uh, that, that teaser reel that he, for some reason, says this isn't a teaser in the teaser reel. But then he's, it's got
0: like three minutes of what has to be the best footage of the
1: movie. Well, the best footage of the Beatles you ever saw. And... All of us who love the Beatles have watched Get Back and and it plays so heavily into the mythology of the breakup of the Beatles. You can just see them hating each other's guts. There's
0: tension in the room oh. more more than any psychodrama. It's so dark,
1: it's, it's a, so awkward. What goes there? Uh, Lennon's nodding off. Paul is like just such a dick to George. Um and then you have the big rooftop concert. And Get Back or I'm sorry, Let It Be came out after the Beatles had announced their breakup. So it was the capper on the Beatles legend, and it's what we've all known for decades. All of us Beatles people. That is what that year was like. That is it. You know, Yoko and John and Paul and Linda and Ringo. It was just, we know the story. And then this Peter Jackson teaser comes out, and they're the lovable Beatles that we that we knew from '64. They're goofing around. They're having so much fun. The music sounds great. Uh, Billy Preston's laughing. Lennon's, you know, playing the fool.
0: I have to assume Peter Jackson has, has chosen those clips for that reason, just to just to give us the idea that there's another story to be told.
1: Well, so Lindsay Hogg filmed fix. I'm sorry, 56 hours of footage. And I think as as anybody could discern, right, in 56 hours of anything, you're going to be able to pull two hours of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but-
0: what, when, was, what was his take when you talked to him? Does, does he think the Jackson footage is misleading or-
1: Well, so this was really the interesting thing. You know, he's a very talkative guy, very interesting guy, obviously. And he comes on the call and he's just ready to chat about it. And so I did say- I found this Peter Jackson footage to be incredibly destabilizing. I was not sure how to what to make of it. I've never seen long-haired John with his granny glasses being like a like a goofy, fun, childlike nut. Um, and so now I don't know what to make of anything. And Lindsay Hogg's impression of his own film um was that. That Let It Be isn't really that dark of a movie, that the Beatles are fun, and and he showed that side, too, and he's thrilled about Peter Jackson's version. Um, and he didn't have the – he didn't fully understand how his movie had been received because – Until the Peter Jackson thing happened? No, I don't even think now. That's funny. I just he just sort of felt like, yeah,
0: this is. He just thought he was choosing the most dramatic bits and wasn't aware that he was making a myth.
1: Yeah, this is kind of the you know that both sides of the Beatles were represented and you could tell that they were having fun sometimes and huh. and I think it's that um, and there there were certain problems. You know, there there are a lot of, a lot of the the copies of Let It Be that we've seen are very degraded. You know, it was filmed in sixteen millimeter. It got. Uh, it kind of changed hands a lot of times. You you see,
0: yeah, the it, color doesn't look great. Whatever the color process was,
1: super dark. And Peter Jackson has all the digital technology to bring all that color back to life,
0: just like he did with World War One. If he can make World <laughs> War One look like a fun day out, what, yes. think what he could do with the Get Back sessions.
1: And I so now we're all really anticipating this. But then listening to Michael Lindsey Hogg talk, um, I I, I understood that. Sure. From the perspective of someone that was there with all of those people and, you know, he's still relatively a young man and, and very much reads like, um, I mean, he's 80 years old, so I guess not a young man, but <laughs> he reads as a young man. You know, he's, he's, uh, he has an effervescence and I could see that, yeah, he felt like his movie was sure warts and all, yeah. but that's what they wanted. You know, that's what they asked for. And he found the warts and put them in, but, um, I uh, yeah, I honestly, the 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 feeling of betrayal that I felt when watching Fun Beatles like nineteen sixty nine Beatles having fun, or sixty eight was was uh, was a feeling of betrayal that he couldn't he couldn't recognize. <laughs> it was you too know? too visceral to you, but.
0: Yeah. Well, you don't think he um, you don't think he redeemed himself by making that VH1 movie where John and Paul hang out at John's apartment uh in the late 70s? Have, did you
1: ever watch that? I you know I've seen screenshots I've heard about I it. I actually
0: watched Aiden Quinn is Paul and um Jared Harris from Mad Men is uh, is John.
1: When they talk about a reunion?
0: Yeah, and they watch the SNL, and they're like, "Oh, should we go down there, John?" You know? Uh, yeah, right.
1: That's a great, a, a great mental image <laughs> of them rolling in. They do not go
0: down there. The whole yeah. thing's made up. Like, there's really no 1st account of it. But you ask Paul today, he doesn't even remember yeah. what what he and John talked about the last time they saw him, or, or even what year it was. Right. Um,
1: and the, another topic of of the movie, or uh, I'm sorry, another topic of the Zoom call is the tendency uh, for Paul to have a a really heavy hand in his revisionism of the story of the Beatles and the feeling that all through the last three decades, Paul's been trying to characterize the Beatles as fun, as friends, and also kind of remind us that he was the first one to smoke marijuana and, you know, that...
0: I wasn't always the 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 drudge and the nerdy one
1: yeah and i think that the that the story became that paul was kind of the um yeah paul was a was a peppy drag
0: and he talks a lot about his f- close friendship with george now you know he makes sure he all every time he performs he'll always do something on a ukulele or here comes the sun on a ukulele i think just so he can talk about oh george up there how much we miss him
1: yeah george and i
0: Maybe, maybe George doesn't miss Paul as much as the other way around.
1: <laughs> but, but this movie, the Peter Jackson footage, really made it seem like... I mean, one of my suspicions was, is this Paul? Is is Paul finally getting the last <laughs> word? Like, is he funding this somehow? Is Peter Jackson, like, in his thrall? Well, he
0: already got Phil Spector off of Let It Be. Right. He already produced his own version of the studio
1: record. Right. Uh. Uh, but, but again, Michael Lindsay Hogg kind of... Uh, like dissuaded us from thinking that felt like, no, I mean, first of all, Paul doesn't have anything to do with this. This is just Peter Jackson having fun as a Beatles fan, but also, you know, maybe Paul has been kind of, um, not, not on a grind, but actually kind of trying to tell a, tell a more accurate story. I mean, Lennon said some terrible things in the seventies and George did too about the Beatles, but you can kind of see How they could do that and also, you know, also be glossing over the fact that, "Eh, it was always fun. Anybody
0: who's ever had a family, I think, siblings, will understand that over a period of decades, you know— Sometimes there are some like dark and tricky days, and sometimes those extend to months and years. Right, and that doesn't mean the good times never happen. It doesn't mean they won't happen again.
1: It doesn't mean that you won't consider running down to Saturday Night Live and and uh, <laughs> doing a, a ukulele version of Here Comes the Sun.
0: I mean, Paul turns Paul's going to turn eighty next year. Yeah, and I don't really know. I mean, at this point, he kind of is who he is. You know, he's not going to he's not gonna say anything new or interesting about the
1: Beatles, right? I think. And that's the, I mean, you sometimes wish that you could sit down with Paul and go, come on, give me the straight score, but. He doesn't remember. No, it's all become story. Yes. Right? But one of the things that Michael Lindsay Hogg just dropped into this conversation, and I mean, of course I was, first of all, the junior member of this, uh, of this illustrious group of people talking to him, but also just, you know, Hanging on his every word. Right. Super thrilled to be listening to him, you know, just talk very casually about, about his work. But he threw out, uh, as, a, as a tossed off as an aside, that the Beatles had prior to making Get Back, or, or Let It Be, um, that they had really tried to do the first, like, Lord of the Rings film um the the book was a you know was a hit with them and um as we'll see in a minute lord of the rings played very prominently in the counterculture of the 60s yes and so it had you know there had been attempts at adaptations of lord of the rings you know throughout the 50s or second half of the 50s and 60s including you know a lot of work uh at disney uh, there was a there was a, a period when they were making Fantasia in the mid 50s that they that they wanted to have a Lord of the Rings sequence in Fantasia, and Disney eventually felt like there are no laughs in this book really. I mean, there you, we could put a few laughs in. They sing songs, but,
0: there, but they sing there, songs about bathing and mushrooms.
1: Yeah, but there are also like a lot of urukai, uh, like slicing people's heads off. Yeah. It's not it's, fun. It's, it's
0: not Disney's not going to make Beowulf, and right. Lord of the Rings is just Beowulf for hippies, now, right? So, uh,
1: but there were lots of attempts to do animated versions of it, um, and several sort of att- screenplays that made their way to Tolkien, who, who kind of famously still held the, the, the film rights, uh, still held the copyright to the book until uh, until the seventies, and we'll talk about copyright in a second too. But um but it
0: was he was skeptical about was he skeptical
1: about movies in general? Uh no, he so Lord of the Rings didn't sell very well when it first came out and it was Interesting. It was Tolkien's life work. The Hobbit must have been a hit. I mean a a, a, rel- a minor hit. I think it was um it was received as a, not exactly high literature but much too complicated and dark and interesting to be a children's book. Uh, Tolkien, of course, being a philologist and a Beowulf scholar and an expert in old Icelandic.
0: He does seem like a guy who accidentally wrote a very long and interesting book. Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) None of his hobbies are interesting or, uh, but, uh, I guess the story's shine through.
1: I mean, like a lot of his contemporaries, like Orwell or C.S. Lewis. I mean, he, um, he, he was writing with a political idea. Tolkien being a sort of small, like a little England conservative, a, a small, you know, a, a village Tory. <laughs> he had a, a vision of of um, the UK that was that was very old school conservative. And if you read his books that way, you see, oh, right. I mean, he's anti-technology. The little
0: rural agrarian shire standing up against the the battle engines of these giant armies and, you know, powers clashing darkly by night.
1: Yeah, exactly. There's no, I mean, the shire has no technology. They have a mill, I believe. Do they? That's that's as far as they've gotten. a, A water mill. Yes. Yeah. Um, but the Shire is also like a regimented class-based society, right? Like Frodo and Bilbo are are prominent citizens. They're the
0: good rich aristocrats with R East, um uh, hangers-on relatives.
1: Yeah, they're not the Tooks, of course, but they're. But uh,
0: they've got all that smaug treasure, man. But all of Mordor smaug
1: money is you know it's an allegory for f- factories and military industrial complex and and probably America. When you uh, when you get right down to it, I
0: feel like uh, America's in the West, so we're covered. We're the we're oh. the we're the ideal perfect elf. You think so? <laughs> yeah, we're we're, we're, the only thing west of, uh, <laughs> we're the only thing west of the west of the Shire.
1: Um, but but uh, when the first attempts to make a Lord of the Rings film came across Tolkien's desk, he was already kind of uh, late middle age, and was unabashedly looking for a payday. Oh, interesting. Uh but he want, but he but because he was old school, he also didn't want to compromise his vision.
0: Well it's tricky because it's an almost unadaptable work just in terms of scale and size and scope alone.
1: It is, but you know, first of all, if you get rid of Tom Bombadil, <laughs> uh which I'm still mad about. But but there I think a lot of the early attempts um within the screenplays themselves, Tolkien could see that. All of a sudden the castles were being made into fairy castles, the uh, you know the nine riders were being turned into shrieking knights errands.
0: I mean if there's one thing he cared about, it was the authentic Norse and Germanic heritage of these tales and symbols, right right. And as soon as people start diluting it with unicorns and uh, and fairies, he's gonna have notes.
1: Right. He's gonna have a lot of notes and and also he did not wa- he did not write the books as a series of sword fights. Swords and sorcery. That's what I mean.
0: He accidentally wrote this amazing uh, well of imagination. But you know, this is a guy that was just really into the Norse Eddas,
1: right? And and every I think every screenplay he received, he ended up toying with, and then a lot of you know there were a lot of meetings, but nothing ever happened. And uh, again, partly because how do you make? I mean, the, the books weren't even originally written as a trilogy. They only became a trilogy because the publisher was trying to put it all together. And none of the early proposals uh, were to make a three-film epic. Didn't
0: really exist then.
1: And how like, you would th- condense those three books into a two-hour film.
0: I mean, before The Godfather Part... I mean, nobody set out to make multiple films, for example. Right. If Doctor Knows a hit, you'll make From Russia with Love, but... I mean, that's the exception, not the rule.
1: Yeah, right. You wouldn't tell the same story over three films. That's suicide. P- particularly not like dark movies that were also animated. Like there weren't, we didn't have yet the idea of a dramatic cartoon either. W- were all the proposals for animation? Yeah, because it was it was widely regarded as completely unfilmable as a live action film.
0: You've got budget problems, and you've got the problem that the main cha- half the main characters are like a third of the size of the other half of the main characters.
1: Right. And, how, I mean, how do you film – I mean, where do you even begin? How did right. Peter Jackson even manage to do it? I mean, he had computers and whatnot. But.
0: It was unfair, really, that he had computers.
1: But in the mid-60s, because of a trick of copyright, um, the books – very briefly in the United States became public domain. There was a clause, but uh, Tolkien's English publisher, Allen and Unwin, which were, you know, highly regarded literary publisher had a, um, had a deal with, did we decide it was Houghton Mifflin? Houghton Mifflin. Yes. Yeah. Had a deal with Houghton Mifflin and, part of US copyright law said that if a certain number of books from overseas were imported into the United States uh and the book was published in the US but uncopyrighted here if a certain number of books from overseas were imported the um the copyright reverted to public domain here it was a uh, That's odd. It was a trick of copyright. Is it like protection?
0: Is it an unintended loophole, or is it some kind of protectionism to uh, to discourage the importation
1: of foreign literature? Yeah, it felt felt like protectionism, right? If you if you don't um, if if you're trying to just sell books published in England here, we're gonna.
0: I see. You you need to make a deal with a local publisher. You can't just mass import Lady
1: Chatterley's Lover. And they did have a a deal, but uh, Houghton Mifflin didn't copyright the. The book here, because the assumption was it wouldn't sell. It was just some little children's book. And uh, although the books were published in the 50s, uh, 54, uh, the three books were published. They'd been written many years prior. The Hobbit came out in 37, right? But Lord of the Rings came out in the mid-50s, and all three books came out within about a year and change of each other.
0: A lot of people blame Houghton for this, but I think it was Mifflin.
1: Yeah, it was, it's always Mifflin. Am I right?
0: What do you think about the shirts this month, John? That we, have, we have available on on uh, omnibusproject.com slash store, thanks to our friends at Mediocrity.
1: I love the fact that we are doing shirts every month. I think our shirt designs are really incredible. I kind of want to solicit uh, shirt designs from the more artistically inclined futurelings the shirt designs that we are making are, I mean, I would be proud to wear them to a wedding or a funeral.
0: Would you wear this black um, Nagel
1: uh, pastiche of you and I? That, that Nagel thing is so cool. I would wear that to the presidential inauguration if I'd been invited.
0: My hair is dark in it because Nagel never drew blondes.
1: Oh, right.
0: Uh and I really I don't know what the what what is the effect I look like um, the kid catcher or something from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, just a fantastic great shirt. reference. All the eighties, um, the font and the little Miami Vice stripes in the corner.
1: It it, it turned out great. Yeah, yeah. I, I think everything should be negalized, including the King James Bible, <laughs> and uh, we can we can start uh, we can start with omnibus being completely negalized.
0: You you want it to be? You think it should be literary works should be Nagelized?
1: Yeah, I think that the story should be told in Nagel posters from hair salons.
0: I think it should still be written text, but it should just be um, with a much more Nagel sensibility. Like, and and Jacob went up to Rebecca, who
1: uh-huh.
0: had pale skin and was
1: scowling and pouting a little bit. Lots of eyeshadow, <laughs> or it could be an illuminated manuscript instead. But instead yeah. of you know very florid first letters, it could be you know like. One of the members of tiran
0: The other shirt is modeled on generic food of the 70s. This is funny. At the bottom, it's, you know it says Omnibus Podcast, but it's like a generic podcast shirt.
1: And it has a barcode.
0: It has a barcode, which um, some people have found out what the barcode is a barcode to, and I thought that was a funny little Easter egg.
1: I oh, encourage you well, to- Well, won't, we won't tell what I'll it is. I'll leave
0: that as an exercise to the listener. Good. It says serving size 29 to 90 minutes twice per week. Oh, that's it. That means we used to record 29-minute shows. We have
1: never done a 29-minute show. Is
0: that possible? What could be the shortest show? I. It must have been very early. Yeah. Uh, we, we certainly don't do that anymore. It's probably starlings or, or defenestration. 90 minutes also would be a bit much.
1: Too much. We try not to do that, but we do get close.
0: Uh, yeah, so really, this um, packaging is making no promises about what you might get inside, but it's a fantastic-looking shirt.
1: Yeah, avail yourselves of these T-shirts. They... Uh, they are things that we're having fun making, and they help us make the show uh, by buying them and supporting them. There are a lot of ways you can support the show. Our Patreon account and buying our merch uh, all all uh, help us a great deal. The rotating
0: shirts are from our friends at Mediocrity. We also have kind of All Purpose Omnibus and Futurelings Hats and mugs and hoodies and whatnot. You can see all of the above by checking out
1: slash store. I'm sure the, the, the futurelings are, if they're not already, uh, planning actual meet space meetups as soon as the pandemic is over. And uh, having one of these t shirts will let you be readily identifiable at the trivia night at your local pub where you and other futurelings congregate.
0: So does that mean a U.S. studio can like try to adapt this? Well, no. What happened?
1: What had happened was um, a uh, a kind of pulp publisher by the name of Ace Books realized this loophole and exploited it by rushing to market a um, the trilogy in paperback, and they were able to undercut the ninety nine cent cover price. Of the, um, of the authorized books, which were published by Ballantine. But these
0: guys just sold spinnerack in drugstore books yeah, or something.
1: Yeah, then they, they could sell the books for 59 cents or something like that. And um, the original books had that sort of 50s science fiction cover art that was a little bit inscrutable relative to the topic of the books, and uh, and one of the to the degree that you think maybe it was painted separately. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, well, one of one of the covers had a couple of emus on it. I mean, they looked like uh, Harlan Ellison cover art or um, or Asimov.
0: Oh yeah, I've seen these.
1: And uh, and the Ace Book covers were kind of cool looking. You know, yeah. they had wizards on them at least, and
0: they've got like Tolkien runes. The Ace Book ones are better.
1: The Ace Book ones are better. And so they flew off the shelves and part of the popularity of these books in the mid sixties was, um, if you, if you squinted your eyes or if your eyes were already squinted because you've been smoking pipe weed, um, you could misread Tolkien's conservatism or the conservatism, the, the like, uh, Violent rurality of Tolkien's vision seemed like it was really an ecological anti-materialist yeah we've we've talked about kind
0: of the in the Whole Earth catalog and Cottage corn and other shows we've talked about the weird kind of back to the farm right um arm of counterculture movements in general
1: and here we are again um, because the books you know the books really, really resonated with the counterculture for a, for a lot of reasons. You know, Aowen uh, was a sort of feminist icon. She was um,
0: good thing. This book, these books have two female characters, <laughs> but one of them actually does something.
1: Yeah, one of them is is a super badass, and I think if you're looking if you're looking for uh, like feminist heroines in just
0: read Middlemarch. I books think of the time. <laughs>
1: you can you can really put yourself in the in the shire if you are and and the fact that pipeweed really really overlaps with marijuana uh it is it, tolkien even re, uh describes it as a as somewhat of a of a hallucinogen I always thought it was tobacco I'm such a nerd it is but you know there there are multiple i mean if you think about um i mean Saruman – even says to Gandalf that his love of pipe weed is clouding his judgment. And you wouldn't say that about tobacco.
0: Is that Peter Jackson or is that Tolkien? I don't even know. That's, when I see that in the movie, I'm like, this is, this is a New Zealand stoner defending his uh, love of pipe weed.
1: Yeah, maybe. Although in the book, Saruman, is, uh, Saruman ends up also taking up pipe weed. Sure, you can't leave your tower. Yeah, right. What's there to do? Just, just, just uh, hang out with a Worm Tongue sure, and uh, watch the wall. <laughs> so, so there, uh, so the Lord of the Rings, because of this, um, because of the popularity of this pulp edition of it, and the many, many ways you could read it as a kind of psychedelic uh, fantasy epic.
0: I'm sure it's just. Plus the fact that it reaches some tipping point in youth culture, right? Right. And then everybody your age is reading it, whether they're uh, crew cut or not.
1: And, and Tolkien was mad about it because Tolkien's deal, his original deal, was a profit-sharing deal. He, he made the original uh, – because I, there was a lot of uh, concern among the publishers that this was going to be a bomb, and it required that you print these enormous books. A million words. And um, and so, kind of insulating themselves from the failure of the of the series, they did a, they cut a deal with Tolkien that he would not receive your normal advance advance or your normal uh, royalties on sales, but only after the book recouped. It's kind of like a record deal after it recouped. Then he received a larger share of the profits, but once this. Paperback edition on Ace Books came out, he was now selling, you know, like thousands and thousands of books, and he wasn't receiving his cut. Don't count against his. And so, you know, fans would write him and say, like, I love your book. And he would say, I need you to go back and buy the Ballantine edition. (laughs) (laughs) He's got a form letter. (laughs) There are all these letters out there from Tolkien saying, like, great, I'm glad you liked it. Now go buy the real edition. Plus, as a
0: stuffy old Cambridge professor, I mean, he he must have been distrustful of the rising generation. And, you know, that's, I don't, did he like seeing Frodo lives graffitied in the subway or? Right, Gandalf for president. Did he think that, did he think that was just,
1: they weren't getting the book? Tolkien hated the counterculture, but he hated modernity. And during this period, uh, uh, right around the publishing of the, of the book, he moved to Oxford uh, to a house on Sandfield Road that was a cul-de-sac it was a quiet little respite his wife edith was sick and it had been recommended that he move to you know take her to a quiet little cottage on a on some high ground and and uh, you know l- like retire oh, to oxford did he become a tourist attraction well no what happened was the city of oxford opened the cul-de-sac <laughs> and opened it to through traffic and so all of a sudden, he's living on a busy road. And he wrote in a letter to a friend that he sits in his house all day and hears radio, television, dogs, scooters, what he called buzz bikes, which is a kind of Tolkien coinage for a, <laughs> for a Vespa, for a motorcycle. The and, all this,
0: in Quenya, it's Vespa, but. Uh, Vespa. In the common tongue, it's a
1: uh, buzz bike. Buzz bike. Uh, and then he says, cars of all sizes but the smallest. Uh, and that this traffic goes from early morn to about 2 a.m. But the real problem was, by the 60s, one of his next-door neighbors was a young guy in a band. <laughs> and this— uh, I, like, I, I want to see this sitcom already. Yeah, right. Tolkien and his wife sitting in their, uh, in their uh, little shack. Banging on the ceiling with a broom. With his, uh, with his ditch weed. And his, uh, his neighboring guy had band practice— Periodically, and he described them as, you know, Beatles wannabes because the Beatles were up on the charts at this
0: point. Like, I'm sure all rock music sounded to him like Beatles wannabes.
1: Yeah, and he, he, he hated it. He despised it. In another letter, he said um, that what he hated about the modern world was sanitation. Or, no, this is what he hated about America sanitation, morale, pep, feminism, and mass production. The Four Great Enemies.
0: Sanitation seems like a weird one. Like, even the 1776 project wasn't like, you know what sucks?
1: Hygiene. Well, I think what he was referring to was like the kind of sanitary kitchens, the modernist... Oh, streamlined yeah, aesthetic. Clean tile instead of... Soulless towns, Right. Okay. Instead of just your old cutting board and... But it is
0: very uh, telling that he uses the word sanitation. Like, this is all just so clean. If you think about how san- come they're not tramping through the woods looking for mushrooms, <laughs>
1: like sanitation as a epithet is right. pretty pretty you good. Sanitary mother <laughs> effer. <laughs> so no, he didn't identify with the counterculture at all, and um, and yet, I think very shortly after the Ace books became super popular, uh, Ballantine made and and Tolkien himself made a really eloquent case that this copyright loophole was a loophole. It didn't make sense. And uh, Ace came around and ended up paying him some royalties, but but the Ballantine books became the authorized edition. And it was only in 1966 that The Lord of the Rings finally were the number one book on the New York Times bestseller list in late 66.
0: And they'd been out for what, since the late fifties or something? For or? 10 years. Oh wow.
1: Uh, but, but they, they really resonated. And of course, as as a, as a fan of the books, and I know you are too, um, you can see that, that at that point, youth culture had, had us enough sophistication that, um, and also enough kind of hallucin- hallucination, what right. am I trying to say? Hallucinogen. They had enough enough ability to appreciate, um, fantastic images yeah. and and uh, aesthetics. It is post post Fantasia life too, but as we've discussed a, a lot, right the the overlap of super conservative anti technology ruralism and super liberal anti technology progressivism. Uh,
0: it's the one thing we can all agree almost on. Almost impossible Sanitation to parse. is the worst.
1: <laughs> and it was right about this point. Uh, the Beatles had signed a deal with United Artists for three films. And they made Hard Day's Night, as we all know, is super big hit. They made Help, which was less of a big hit, but still a very influential film. And then they were under contract to supply a third film. They, uh, Yellow Submarine didn't count. They really had no involvement in Yellow Submarine.
0: Uh, I remember discovering that they were not the voices in Yellow Submarine and being very disappointed.
1: Yeah. It's kind of disappointing, but they ended up loving it.
0: Yeah. When it turned out to be good, they recorded that little tag at the end where they clown around and, right. and count off the beginning of Altogether Now.
1: Uh, in the end, I mean, they tried to do Magical Mystery Tour, which was largely Paul's idea. And Magical Mystery Tour was incomprehensible. Um, I think the first time Magical Mystery Tour was broadcast on English television, it was in black and white. So all of the psychedelia was was unreadable.
0: I can see just being resistant some of them to the idea of making a third movie. You know, like those were that was hard work. You know, they're the two or three months they had to put in on a hard day's night and help, long days, not as maybe not as glamorous as uh, other parts of being uh, the biggest rock star in the world. Plus the third time you do anything starts to feel like a job. Yeah. Hard, Hard Day's Night must've just felt like a lark and you can see it in every frame, but.
1: Well, it's funny because this is coming out of an era when pop stars were fairly commonly cast in films. You expect it. Yeah. I mean, think of all the Elvis all those, movies. Yeah. And and they, don't, they
0: don't have to be good. That's the thing about Hard Day's Night.
1: Right, although Hard Day's Night is fantastic. It's
0: actually good. Yeah. You know, uh, for people who had only seen Elvis movies, they must have been shocking.
1: And Hard Day's Night was the rarity um, and, and also sort of a uh, trendsetter that the Beatles played fictionalized versions of themselves rather than cast as...
0: Oh, yeah, it would have been more normal to be four lads in the French Foreign Legion or right. something. Well, and so
1: starting, in, starting very, very early in their career, Hard Day's Night era, people started pitching the Beatles movies. The first movie that was pitched to them was a drama called "The Yellow Teddy Bears," <laughs> and it was about a group of high school girls who, um, whose signal to one another that they had lost their virginity was that they wore a pin on their very chaste school uniform of a yellow teddy bear. Ah,
0: oh, it's like hanky codes.
1: Yeah, and it was a. It was a a group of bad girls. When the film was released in the United States, it was uh, it was ultimately made. It was called the Gutter Girls and the Thrill Seekers in their in its uh, U.S. Like, edition, like an
0: exploitation movie.
1: Yeah, um, and it was uh, the Beatles were offered the role of the band Kinky Carson and the Embers, <laughs> who were. But they weren't going to be playing Beatles music. They were cast you as – You got to play
0: Kinky Carson music. You yeah. got to get deep into character.
1: So they were just going to be like a group of bad boy musicians in this bad boy film. Captain Geach and the Shrimp Shack Shooters. And they didn't like it and they passed on it, uh, I, think, I think for obvious reasons. And then uh, after the success of Hard Day's Night and I think Circa Help, uh, there was a second proposal – a movie called A Talent for Loving, which the title doesn't really convey, is and based on a novel by the same name. It does seem a little naughty. Um, it was an Old West film.
0: <laughs> of course. We got to put these guys in a Western.
1: Yeah, where the Beatles were going to appear as uh, Lillipudians who had been transplanted to the Old West. And it was a film...
0: Um nobody would ever be able to complain again about like there being a black guy in a Robin Hood movie if if the Beatles had made it actually made a western
1: right with the and you know and had their beetle hair uh <laughs> it was kind of a sexy romp uh it was it was like a, basically a retelling of the farmer's daughter story. there was a nymphomaniac girl and so forth um and the oh, Beatles, it's based
0: on a Richard Condon novel, The Manchurian Candidate Canada guy that's
1: right that's right and and Richard Condon actually wrote the script for the film. Hmm. Um, and this was being produced by a guy named Walter Shenson, who really wanted to make a Beatles movie. Shenson had a long history with the Beatles. He'd produced both Hard Day's Night and Help.
0: So he's trying to bring them their third project.
1: Yeah, this is the third project, and he wants he wants in on it, and he keeps bringing them these scripts. Uh, they didn't like A Talent for Loving either, and I think that was right. I mean, that was peak Beatlemania. And again, I mean, I think they probably would have tried to get some Beatles songs in... A talent for loving, but it wasn't. It wasn't a project that featured them, or, you know. That was going to be like a Beatles movie. It was a. It was a, a western. Do you think
0: that's appealing to them? That they are, um, or, or or are they like, hey, we're the biggest stars in the world. We can make any movie we want.
1: I think they probably wanted more of a hand in it. I mean, witness Magical Mystery Tour, which was a, an a, an idea that they came up with. That, Sitting around stoned. And there's. We'll write and direct it. It'll be. We'll be great at that too. Yeah. It's very little plot to that movie. That movie actually ended up being made. Um, And it starred Chaim Topol. (laughs) Uh, I'm looking. Of uh, Fiddler on the Roof. And Cesar Romero was in it and Richard Widmark. So it became a. It's a, you know, it's a a B movie. But uh, that movie got made. And then in 67. If you think about the original Jungle Book, the 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 Disney one, the Disney Jungle Book for 'sixty seven and whatnot, yeah, okay. Uh, Think about the characters of the vultures. Oh yeah, they're um, four like lovable mop tops. They do
0: Liverpool accents. They do, but then they sing barbershop.
1: They do. (laughs) Well, those the vultures in Jungle Book were actually written for the Beatles. Uh, and the Beatles, for whatever reason, also declined to appear in in the Jungle Book. As
0: it does seem like a weird cameo. Uh,
1: it's a weird cameo, like
0: with big, like big stars, like um, you know, Disney at that time is using these TV stars, Phil right. Harris or, or whatever,
1: <laughs> right? And uh, yeah. Don' not. Why are the Beatles in this movie? <laughs> uh, it would have been hilarious. And in fact, when John Favreau remade the Jungle Book, it occurred to him. Uh, And he reached out to Paul and Ringo, the two surviving Beatles, and said, hey, do you want to be the vultures? But I think he got to them too late, or I mean, it didn't, for whatever reason. He had
0: to reach out to Peter Noon or somebody instead.
1: Yeah. So the Beatles were being pitched films all the time, and, and it was a natural part of celebrity. So it was really John, I think, that seized on the idea of doing Lord of the Rings, and at this point, they, um, they'd made two films with Richard Lester directing and wanted – now, I mean, they were big artists. They were big stars. They wanted to branch out. And John had the idea of um, Stanley Kubrick directing the Beatles in The Lord of the Rings.
0: What's Kubrick's filmography look like right now? He's already made Spartacus and – I guess it's around the time he's making 2001. So he's
1: making two thousand one at the at the moment. Oh, and right, John
0: would have loved Doctor Strangelove, of
1: course. Doctor Strangelove yeah, and Lolita and okay. Lolita. And they,
0: the, the Beatles loved Peter Sellers. They loved the Goons. Right,
1: and he and and Kubrick was, um, you know, and that's why they that's why they chose Richard Lester in the first place, right? He had made those right yeah, that's Peter right. Sellers movies, that's right, or films.
0: And then Kubrick now is um, he's kind of adopted Britain as his homeland,
1: right? And he is, yeah, he's an auteur and, and John and the, the boys feel like they, they warrant, you know, a big time director. But Kubrick is having a really hard time figuring out the special effects for 2001 at the time. You know, they're supposed to, supposed to be aliens in that movie and he couldn't get them to look right. Yeah. And ended up, you know, you ended up, you don't see Jaws until the, until the final scene and it doesn't look very good.
0: You don't uh, see the star child until the last shot. Right. And then Jaws eats him.
1: Um, and so Kubrick felt like it was not filmable. John wanted to be Gollum. Paul was gonna be Frodo. Uh George was gonna be Gandalf. All of this seems right.
0: Yeah, this works.
1: Uh Ringo was gonna be Sam. Sam sidekick. And Is it
0: and but if it's not it's not gonna be animated, then if it's Kubrick, right? Or is it? Well, so there were a lot of different
1: Ideas, maybe they would be live action in a kind of animated world, uh, sort of the way they appear in *Yellow Submarine*.
0: I've always thought it's weird that then George is going to be just twice as tall as the other Beatles. That would be the ultimate revenge. Yeah, super He's just towering over Paul.
1: But you know, that, a psychedelic take on it. Maybe that's not. Maybe it's all. Maybe the
0: hobbits are just normal size
1: or walking around on their knees. And when it was submitted to Tolkien, he hated the idea. Um... He did not want the film – he didn't like the books being associated with counterculture, and he did not want the script and the film to be further sort of polluted.
0: Well, he's not wrong. A Beatles Lord of the Rings movie is going to be a Beatles movie, I think, yeah. to a great degree. Right. Just Not just because of their creative clout, but also just their – the indelibility of their images that come with them.
1: Well, and they're going to goof. Right. That's Right. A, yeah. And they're going to be high. They're going to goof and be high. Uh, when Peter Jackson heard about this from Paul during the making of Lord of the Rings, because this this all came out, this story all came out as a result of Peter Jackson hearing about it from Paul, and he kind of told it as an anecdote during the the original Lord of the Rings Oh, is that right? Reveal. This wasn't
0: widely known until the, the, the 90s? No, no. It, the, it, it, or the early 2000s when it, Lord of the Rings came out? It,
1: there, it, it didn't have any... Um, there wasn't any w- way that it, it made it into the popul- popular culture. I think it actually came out as a result of an offhand conversation between Peter and Paul and... Uh, on the road to Galilee, yeah. And Paul, uh, Paul said, "You know, I'm glad we didn't do it. We would have really ruined it. And your movies are are great. So, um, you know,
0: that's nice. Very diplomatic of Paul. Right. Shalom. Don't want to rob Peter to pay Paul.
1: Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then I think the final, the final film. I guess my question is: Would there have been Beatles songs? Yes, and that is the one thing that I think the world regrets is that by that point in time, the Beatles were prepared to make it a musical film and to put write
0: right new versions of, of Tolkien uh, yeah,
1: ballads to put that all that to um, all that to music. And you know there's a there's a huge volume of of Lord of the Rings rock. But it all came out in the seventies, you know, Zeppelin. Yeah, why didn't
0: Zeppelin make Lord of the Rings? Zeppelin's got
1: got three uh, Lord of the Rings songs at least. Sabbath had uh, Genesis, Rush. They all did. Um, they all did Lord of the Rings stuff. And because by the seventies, it was just you know, it pervaded the culture.
0: And people are not going to now that we think of Lord of the Rings as either just this you know uh, permanent part of the canon, no different than Moby Dick, or kind of a nerd subculture icon. It's funny that people are not going
1: to remember the time when Star uh, Lord of the Rings belonged to longhairs. Right, and I I think yeah, the tra- that transition happened when I read the Lord of the Rings it would have been 1980 and it already was transitioning into the Dungeons and Dragons universe, which definitely nerdified it. That's when the trekkies got hold of it. Right, but also took it well well out of the out of the 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 realm of people that listen to Rush, and put it into uh, like a new a new platform a new universe. But yeah, since the movies have been made, it's just part of the Marvel. You know, the, it's part of the Spidey verse.
0: Do you want to pitch um, Beatles songs about Tolkien? I want to hold your white hand of Saruman. Or...
1: <laughs> I feel like they all should have been in Elvish, right? I mean, there's there are tons of ballads. That's or Corvish
0: Yeah, it could just be like it's it's not that n- different from George's ragas or uh, right. Quando Para mucho mi amore.
1: Can you think? Of, can you think about the song they would have written in Entish? Boom, 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 boom. They should have let Ringo just write the the, the Ent songs. There uh there was one final movie that was pitched to the Beatles. It was pitched as Shades of Personality, a uh multi uh, like a like a uh a sort of schizophrenic plot line where the Beatles are four different personalities within uh within the main character. Well, that's fun. Uh, definitely, but it was dark and um it eventually was uh, the Beatles didn't like it. And um then it was rewritten by uh, by the playwright Joe Orton and again kind of pitched to the Beatles they rejected it and then the movie was sort of being it was being primed to um to be like more widely pitched as a film and the day of the meeting that Joe Orton was going to show up and and uh and pitch the movie um he was killed by his Lover Ken Halliwell in a murder-suicide, and so the the rest of the people you know showed up for the lunch, and uh, Joe Orton didn't arrive, and uh, and it was because uh, because he and his lover were dead.
0: A big a big um, yeah, a big trial of the century was right. going to start, but oh, eventually up crazy. against
1: it got made as an off-Broadway play uh, with a with a soundtrack by Todd Rundgren. So it did finally see the light. You play.
0: can't get the Beatles. Right. It did finally see the light.
1: Who better? Todd Rundgren. Todd Rundgren saw the light. The ultimate, he came from Lothlorien.
0: (laughs) And that concludes The Beatles' Lord of the Rings. Entry 107.ex2512. Certificate number 51290 in the Omnibus. Uh, Futurelings, you no doubt live in a post-social media era, and we are jealous of you. Hmm. But in our day, we were at Omnibus Project on uh Twitter we were on Facebook not under that handle but mostly in the form of the futurelings fan page which is a lovely uh lovely gathering of um omnibus minded individuals they are
1: super good and smart people
0: and they have their various subreddits and sub discords and whatnot
1: as well if you are against Facebook which we cannot blame you for. no after
0: who who has lived through the last four years and is still Violently pro Facebook,
1: we we hear a lot from futurelings on Facebook that it's the only reason they're still on Facebook. And so, like everyone in this country, we're waiting for the next place to gather that isn't a terrible place.
0: Presumably, you're all descendants of the Winklevoss twins, and you hate <sighs> Facebook as much as we do.
1: they're all they're all uh, members of an omnibus group on parlor. <laughs> oh, yeah, which becomes the dominant place.
0: We don't know where the omnibus fans on parlor are hook us up. Uh, we can, uh, you can email us, uh, or you could in our day at the omnibus project at gmail.com. You could send us physical items to our PO box, uh, which was omnibus project PO box five, five, seven, four, four shoreline, Washington, nine, eight, one, five, five, we have a big backlog of mail here because of kind of the holiday. The holidays are a series, a season of gifts and cards. Yes. And then we just like didn't do any shows for Did two Did we get months. a lot of
1: Christmas cards or holiday cards?
0: I'm just going to go through the postcards right now. Andrea from Dallas Thank sent you. us greetings from Dallas with a fun map. Thank you, Andrea. Um, Michelle from Pittsburgh sent us a postcard of uh, Godzilla attacking Pittsburgh in Godzilla, 1876.
1: Godzilla, 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 Godzilla. Maybe we
0: should do that on the show. I didn't know that the Godzilla... Time,
1: the time that... Uh, Godzilla attacked?
0: It looks like he's stamping through the little miniature Pittsburgh from the beginning of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood.
1: It does. Wait a minute. Was Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood filmed in Pittsburgh? Uh-huh. You can't tell? I did not know that. It's
0: full of Pittsburghian goodness. Uh, Rebecca, it looks like, sent us this picture of a giant Alexander Calder in Chicago. Thank we you, we had another Chicago out who complains that there's not enough Chicagoan topics on the show. Oh, here it is. It's an unusual waters. Do not swim in or eat fish from the waters of lake uh, michigan says this postcard
1: maybe we should do mrs o'leary's cow Uh,
0: well that's what uh let's see katie is requesting either reversing the chicago river oh that was a good one that is a good one 1992 basement flood the midnight bulldozing of meg's field and many a politician's demise that
1: midnight bulldozing is good we could also do the uh the uh the famous rock and roll bus sewage dump oh i don't know this story oh really well, I'll save it for our Mrs. O'Leary's cow episode. Coming soon. Preview coming. To-
0: Bobby from Anchorage made us this um, omnibus-specific thing with nautiluses, nautili, and a raccoon. Worshipping a raccoon. I
1: was just in Anchorage. I'm sorry I didn't hook up with you, Bobby.
0: Uh, Sparky, traveling the road, sent us this from the Providence and Worcester um, Railroad, which I think is funny. I think this just appeared on Omnibus that aired... The Allegheny Time. Yeah. I think this railroad appeared in the Allegheny Time show, which would have aired after he sent
1: us this. Weird.
0: Here's the New Mexico state flag and postcard form from Margaret, who wants us to know that in New Mexico, the state tree is a bush, the state flower is a shrub, the state bird doesn't fly, the state gem doesn't sparkle, the state tie isn't tied.
1: Right. That doesn't seem like anything to be proud of. The state tie feels like it's a bolo tie.
0: I assume it's a bolo. Yeah. What's the, the state gem not sparkling? I assume it's the same as our state gem, petrified wood.
1: Is that true? Oh, I I imagine it could be. Maybe it's not. Maybe Wait, it's... our state gem is petrified wood? And maybe the state mineral. I don't understand. We don't have much claim to that. What's
0: the state bird that doesn't fly? What do they have, a roadrunner? Roadrunners can what? fly. Can they? Can't they? I don't think there's any southwestern birds that don't fly. Beep, beep. Maybe the state bird of New Mexico is the penguin. Matt and Larissa emu. of Columbia. Yeah, it's the emu of columbus ohio discovered the ominous just in time for 2020 which got them through it and your other shows thank you
1: thank you very much
0: i'll put pictures of all these on the patreon enjoy all the
1: wonderful deli food you have there in columbus that we do not have here
0: peter sent us a card for the trinity site in new mexico which is only open two days out of the year
1: Maybe that's the bird that doesn't fly. I don't.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a bird that was at the Trinity side and no longer flies. Wait,
1: you mean you can only go visit Trinity two days a year? That's what I want to
0: know. What are the two days?
1: How do you... Maybe the vernal equinox.
0: It's Christmas Eve and Christmas. Hmm. You just, you've got to really want it.
1: Guy Fawkes Day.
0: Uh, Will send us a bridge across the Mississippi in St. Louis. And this is, this is a great one. Uh, David Chelsea, our cartoonist friend from Portland, uh, must have just listened to the Boysenberry show.
1: That sets the Wayback Machine to way back. the Boysenberry Show.
0: I just ran over his letter with the wheels of my chair. I, I apologize, David. And he so he sent us, he wanted to defend the salal berries, which he say make a delicious Northwest pie. Have you ever had
1: a, you ever baked salal? So I have salal growing in my garden, and I just recently looked up that it is edible, but I had never set about to eat it.
0: David says it's the best pie you can make with a much more um, richer and complex flavor than blueberries. And to sell it, he painted us this delightful watercolor of a uh, small pie, and he also tossed in a portrait of you with um, I'm not sure charcoal. Maybe is this just what? It's, it's me
1: holding charcoal, or he drew it with charcoal.
0: I can't tell what the medium is. It's maybe stippled with ink, but also pencil. It's lovely. Look at that we'll put that wow. on the Oh, You
1: know, a lot of uh, portraits of me d- don't capture my effervescence, but I really like this one. It it, it it's it full of does. it's full of joie de vivre. Oh, and it's on tissue paper.
0: Yeah, this is just him clowning around with a napkin. What a nut. Look How good that is. That is really good. Uh Britta, I guess had told us about her um mask up bumper stickers. She sent us each two. My mask protects you, your mask protects me. And the gimmick is there in the colors of your favorite sports team. So this is the navy and green of, um, I guess, the Sounders or the Seahawks. Sure. Um, so you can check her out on... Electric green. You can check her out on the internet as Team Mask. Thank you, Britta.
1: Oh, and one more thing. Do you like weird maps, John? Do you like weird maps? Well, i got a map for you.
0: I like weird maps as well. Uh, hold on, I lost the cover letter. Neil sent us this proposal to reform the Electoral College by making sure that... All 50 U.S. states have the same population.
1: Oh, I do like that map, and they're named after their. The states are renamed, so there's like an Ogallala State for the Dakotas and Colorado.
0: We are up here in Rainier, right? But um,
1: and then Salt Lake really dominates the uh, Inland Empire. There,
0: here's what I'm not sure I understand. Uh, Shasta is most is like mostly um, Cascadia, yeah, Western Oregon. Um, but also, it gets Hawaii. If you look down here, Alaska is part of Rainier. Good. Whereas Hawaii is part of Shasta, and I feel like I might have tossed Hawaii in with maybe one of the Californian uh, uh, new states, like Temecula. or
1: I feel like Tua. Alaska and Hawaii ought to be ought to be their own territory. But the
0: population doesn't work out. That's the problem. Oh, He's I see. locked into fifty equal population states. So in this case.
1: You right, know, their entire population still isn't enough.
0: Like, New York is just basically, it looks like Manhattan and, and Brooklyn, whereas, um, you know, Long Island and uh, part of
1: Connecticut become Throg's Neck. I wonder if you have to start, if you're going to divide the population up by 50, you have to start with New York as the benchmark population because you can't really divide, you couldn't have like lower manhattan brooklyn but not queens and um you know harlem
0: it looks like there is some attempt to keep cultural lines together
1: yeah that's nice i see adirondack there
0: it looks like the biggest state here would either be salt lake which has idaho montana you know it's basically the mormon corridor of idaho utah eastern oregon a little bit of nevada some half of montana or it's shiprock which is basically... Colorado, Kansas. Arizona. It's all the four-corner stuff. Arizona, New Mexico, all the
1: way over to West Texas. Um, it's pretty good. Yeah, I like it a lot. Thank you for sending I us... I mean, it's like a food-for-thought map, which I like.
0: Thank you for sending us your map, Neil. We'll we'll put up a photo of that as well. Boy, deep, deep dip into the mailbag there, making this a longer episode. Um, so yeah, send us all your, all your detritus. Uh, we love it all. Um, and uh, the best way to support the show honestly, I mean sending us fun maps is fun
1: mm-hmm.
0: but uh, what keeps the lights on around here is our Patreon, you can become a supporter of the show uh, and receive the not just the sense of community spirit that pervades our Patreon community but also the cool perks you get like a free addenda episode every month and at higher levels uh, even getting to uh, virtually hang out with us And everything's virtual now, so you're really hanging out with us.
1: That's it. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survived. Uh, The Biden administration makes it seem fractionally more likely, but I can't say that for certain. Um, We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come, or at least not in our lifetimes or in any way inconveniencing us.
0: Or the lifetimes of anyone
1: we know. Right.
0: It just has to happen in the lifetimes of total strangers.
1: Yes. My child, Ken's children, hopefully also will live in a time of peace and prosperity. Uh, But then their children. Yeah, I'm not locked into my grandchildren. Who cares? If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.